May I speak to you in the name of our loving, liberating, and life-giving God. Amen. Amen. We hear in the words of the Gospel today, Jesus' first glimpse of Jerusalem as he comes over the Mount of Olives from his friend's home in Bethany, having come from Galilee in the north. This is our first indication of what is to come which is his confrontation with the authorities and the events of his death and resurrection that will eventually unfold. We're given this glimpse here on the second Sunday in Lent, still early in our season of preparation, but standing out as a kind of premonition. So much of this season is fraught with the specter of anti-Semitism, that is the Christian blaming of Jews for the death of Jesus, particularly as we approach Holy Week and the events of Good Friday a few weeks from now. We hear language right within the New Testament itself that has been used throughout history to justify the blaming of the Jews as a people for the death of Jesus and to justify the marginalization of Jews in Christian Europe throughout the centuries. An insidious culture of anti-Semitism in Europe helped to enable one of the worst genocides of the 20th century only a few decades ago. Some of you here today remember that. Every Christian living in this post-Holocaust world needs to be very, very vigilant, and I would say especially in this season of the year, that we take care to understand and interpret the story of Jesus' ministry, his confrontation with the authorities, and his eventual death by crucifixion in a way that does not add to this tragic history. Many of you will remember uh, the controversy a number of years ago when the Mel Gibson film, The Passion of the Christ, came out. When the film came out over a decade ago, I'm sure now, many felt that it was a realistic, if, if highly sensational and graphic, portrayal of the actual events of Jesus' passion while others argued that it further added to the culture of Jew-blaming that has plagued so much of Western history, enabling the tragic events of the Holocaust. At the time of the controversy uh, over the film, the National Council of Churches suggested some guidelines for those who chose to actually go and see the film. Those guidelines were these. Read at least two gospel accounts of the Passion, read a reputable introduction or commentary on the Passion narratives that deal with the religious and political context of the Gospel writers, reflect on whom Jesus was speaking of when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Was it the Roman authorities, the Jewish religious leaders, the disciples who fled, all of humanity? then said to discuss in a group how the Jews are portrayed in the movie and how Jesus himself might respond to this portrayal and explore concrete ways of building better relationships with Jewish people and institutions. I also remember at the time a rabbi friend of mine writing in an article that he had gone to see the movie himself and in this article he said that he didn't believe that most Christians when they saw it Uh, its somewhat negative portrayal of Jews, would think of their Jewish neighbors up the street any more than Jews when they see the movie Exodus related to modern Egyptians. He said very charitably, I think, 
that while the movie could justify the contempt of those who are already anti-Semites, it will not produce new anti-Semites. We can only hope and pray that he was right. But here we are at the leading edge of this story today as Jesus approaches Jerusalem where he will be killed. Whether we like the ugly parts of the story or not, they're part of our story. We see him making his way very deliberately to Jerusalem because that's where the prophets go. We hear him make predictions of his own death and we hear the Pharisees warning him that Herod wants to kill him. Now scholars disagree on exactly why the Pharisees would have issued such a warning to Jesus. But it should not be surprising to us, given that Jesus often had very close relationships with Pharisees, even as much as he tangles with them sometimes. He is seen eating in their homes, after all, and it is Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the council and probably a Pharisee, who took responsibility for giving Jesus a proper burial. And in the Acts of the Apostles, we see Gamaliel, a Pharisee, persuading the council not to kill the apostles, just in case their work might actually be of God. And then Luke also reports many Pharisees among the early Christian believers. And then there is Paul, who continues to refer to himself in the present as a Pharisee and proudly proclaims his proper Jewish heritage and pedigree, even while not relying on it for his salvation. There wasn't anything about being part of the Jewish people that was in the least bit undesirable anywhere in the New Testament. Quite the contrary, in fact. Instead, as we see here, Jesus' real opposition is Herod, who is an antagonist not because he's a Jew, in fact, he's really not even really Jewish, but because he is a pompous pretender to power. Herod often fashioned himself to be a lion. But Jesus says, go tell that fox for me. And this was an insult, actually, saying that he was the opposite of a lion. He's just a small fry fox. It reminds me of a famous moment in a vice presidential debate many of you will remember back in 1988. One candidate said to the other, in so many words, young man, I knew John Kennedy, and you're no John Kennedy. This is Jesus saying, Herod, you're no lion, you're a puny fox, and I'm too busy doing my work to be worried about you. Jesus' beef was not with any particular religious or ethnic group, but with those who abused their power. They abused money, position, or people for their own gain. Whether they were Jews or Gentiles mattered not one bit. In this way, he stood in a long line of prophets who spoke the truth to power. Like the prophets who went before him, Jesus went to Jerusalem, the seat of power and the symbol of established interest. It was our Washington, D.C., New York City, and Hollywood all rolled up into one. And then the scene shifts, and we see a picture of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. 
The sight of this touches nerves that are very real and also contemporary to all who long for peace in that very divided yet still holy land and city. I remember my very first trip to Jerusalem in the early 1990s as we went across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives where we had one of the most magnificent views there is of the old city and its walls. There on that hillside in East Jerusalem is a beautiful little Franciscan church built in the 1960s on the site of a 5th century Byzantine church. And the church is shaped like a teardrop. The church is named Dominus Flevit, Latin for the Lord wept. The window over the altar in that church frames an absolutely stunning view of Jerusalem, the city over which Jesus wept when he said those words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. It is a reminder to us of what happens to prophets all too often, both then and now, when they say things we cannot bear to hear. Think of Martin Luther King here in our own country, or maybe Rachel Corey. Remember her? Anybody know the name? The American young woman from Olympia, Washington, who nearly 20 years ago was killed by an Israeli bulldozer as she stood together with Israelis, Palestinians, and Americans trying to prevent the demolition of a Palestinian home using only nonviolent means. She was a kind of prophet. Prophets, truth-tellers, are often not very popular people, particularly with those in power. But I'm drawn to this passage for yet another reason. We hear in Jesus' words and in his emotions a depth of spiritual passion that is so lacking in most of our experiences. As someone wrote to me a few years ago, and I quote, Modern people have no category for spiritual passion. It terrifies them. It seems so primal and raw, so unpredictable and dangerous that they believe it must be stopped from entering polite public life. This lack of a place for spiritual passion is evident even in the churches, he wrote. Dialogue is good. Instruction is fine. Debate and confrontation can be prophetic as long as no one is stirred at those primal levels. He went on to say, even for church people, spiritual passion is nearly unknown. It is therefore feared. Without this sense of passion, he writes, however, religion, he says, is a sterile, stifled, pitiable thing, worse than useless. It becomes duty, responsibility, vows, lifeless form without substance. There is such a thing as abuse of religious passion, just as there is abuse of sexual passion. I have seen it, he writes, and it's not nice. I fear it even, but I don't fear it, this spiritual passion, as much as I fear spiritual death. End of quote. I think I would have to agree with him. Does the massacre of 11 people in a Jewish synagogue last October in Pittsburgh by a white nationalist angry about their care for immigrants lead us to a kind of holy anger and anguish, a kind of spiritual passion? Does this past week's terror attack during Friday prayers at a mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand 
by an Australian white supremacist leaving 49 dead and many more injured fill us with righteous anger and spiritual passion? Do these events move us enough to make us want to stand together with those who suffer and work for change in our country and around the world? These are all too common occurrences in the world we are living in now and should be reminders to us of the dangers of racial and religious bigotry and the white supremacy that is now increasingly supported by politicians here and in other countries in Europe and Latin America. Standing against them calls for our spiritual passion. They should make us weep as Jesus wept looking out over Jerusalem. To feel nothing and to not be moved to action is to experience, yes, a kind of spiritual death. Jesus feared the spiritual death of those who practiced religion in name only, but who had lost their knowledge and their experience of God. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. The story is told of a man's hen house, which burned to the ground one day. He and his grandson put out the fire, and as they sorted through the wreckage, they came upon one hen lying dead near what had been the door of the hen house. Her top feathers were singed brown by the fire's heat. Her neck was limp. He bent down to pick up the dead hen. As he did, the hen's four little chicks came scurrying out from beneath her burnt body. The chicks survived because they were insulated by the shelter of a hen's wings. That's the kind of passion Jesus not only talked about and prayed about and wept over Jerusalem about, that he experienced in his death. And now we chicks go merrily on our way, unfazed, or do we? Or do we? Lent is a time to reconnect not only with the passion, but with our passion, to find the things that stir us and move us and bring them to God, to learn to weep for the things that God weeps for, to allow ourselves to be moved by injustice and cruelty, to learn to hear the prophets and heed them. Today we hear Jesus calling, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, America, America, Seattle, Seattle, Jeff, Jeff, don't be afraid to listen and to feel and to heed my words. Amen.